This morning, uh, we'll actually be reading from John chapter 6, starting with verse 25. And it says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to, what, 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 what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. This is the word of the Lord. God, you guys can take a seat. Our, uh, Miles has taken the Sunday off, and he's the one who deals with the slides, so we'll blame him for all the slide confusion. I hope he's here and hears that. No, um, no I, uh, I want to say welcome again. I know a few people have said it. Um, yeah, if you, don't, you know, if you don't know who I am, my name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here, uh, teaching pastor. Uh, we're elder-led, just so you know, and uh, I'm one of the elders. We're actually part of Redemption Church, which is nine different congregations spread throughout the state of Arizona. Uh, we'd love to help you navigate any questions you'd have as to why we do things the way that we do here at Redemption. Uh, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be at the Connect Us afterwards or in the lobby. You can find one of us. Here's where I want to start. Um, just real quick, just two quick minutes on what we had talked about last week. And if you weren't here, it might be a little bit out of left field. But we had talked about Lent last week. And based on conversations and emails and texts and stuff, I just want to make sure we're clear on some things in regards to Lent. I'm obviously not going to rehash everything that I had said, and we're going to jump into John here in a second. But there are three things that I think are important for us to understand when it comes to Lent. Um, The first thing is, uh, I would just encourage you, if you're choosing to partake in Lent, if you're wondering what Lent is and why we would partake in Lent, um, you can listen to last week's sermon. But um, if you are choosing to go through kind of a, a... uh, Taylor had used the term a couple times in, in worship, this pilgrim's journey over the next 40 uh, days and kind of put in front of you this idea of self-denial and reflection and all that. Awesome. Uh, the first thing I would encourage you to do is just be mindful of how you portray that in regards to telling people. Um, there is an element of pride and an element of sneaky uh, kind of self-centeredness, wanting people to know what you're doing that can creep in when you choose to abstain from something. So just be mindful of that. The second thing is, is actually the opposite, um, which is I would encourage those of you who, uh, yeah, I guess who are choosing to partake and are afraid to say anything to anyone. And, and really, I mean, this I think is a misunderstanding of Matthew 6. I've had a few conversations with people uh, on this 6, 16 through uh, 18, is that there's something beautiful about corporate fasting. The church for millennia has decided together to go, hey, let's all fast on this thing. And so I don't think, I think as awkward as it is for those of you who are not eating meat for 40 days to like say something and make the attention about you, I think it's equally detrimental to like, like, hey, why aren't you eating meat? It's like, oh, I don't know. I'm just, uh, what's that? Like pretend nothing. Like that's just weird. Like letting brothers and sisters in the faith know what's going on uh, is good. And then the third thing is, 
You know, in situations, Richard Claus had said this. I was with a group of leaders uh, this last Monday, my wife and I, and Richard, I thought, made a great statement. You know, in an opportunity, let's just take an opportunity where you're at work and your coworker says, hey, you want to go out to lunch, and you happen to be fasting that day. A great way to know where your heart is in this season of Lent and, and wanting people to know and not wanting people to know is, how much are you talking about the fast? How much are you talking about you in the fast compared to how much you're talking about Christ in the fast? So your, your friend goes, you want to go to lunch? And you go, well, no, I, I can't. I ha- I'm not. Like, and you begin to go on and on about what you're doing instead of going, actually, it's crazy. This season is the church has celebrated what Christ has done. And Christ went through a season of self-denial, and I'm partaking in that self-denial. Like, see how we're pointing towards? And you're going to be that weird, awkward Christian. Um, and there's, there's this fear of kind of connecting us to those who are religiously bound by legalism to Lent. And I think those who are religiously bound by legalism talk in the opposite way. They make it Lent about themselves. But this season of Lent is meant to be about Christ, and we're denying ourselves to draw near to him, and that includes, includes the areas of mission. So anyway, just some uh, observations for whatever that's worth on the season of Lent. Again, if you have questions, I'd love to help you navigate that. You can see the blog we threw out if you're looking for practical ways to, to get involved. All right, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into John. I'm going to pray for us here in a minute. Um, but I want to give you some just context of, of how John works. Uh, Candace and I, we got saved into a tradition that um, wasn't allowed to watch Harry Potter. That's why I always say, like those of you who grew up in the church, you're not allowed to watch Harry Potter. That was just our experience, right? So uh, Candace had read a few books uh, of the books before uh, she had become a believer, and then she had to quickly pretend she'd never read any of that uh, heresy uh, when she became a believer. We, we ended up watching the movies later on with our kids, ironically, um, for the first time. And one of the first things that I observed, probably three or four movies in, was each of these movies has a different feel. It was crazy. And then I, you know, we did some research, and we found out that the movies are directed by different directors for each movie. So it's the same story, but a different director. Now, if you are like me, and maybe you're not, but my favorite gospel, which I think a lot of Christians, is the gospel of John. And the reason I share this, it's a different uh, director and Harry Potter, and as an example, uh, is because what we see in the Gospel of John is it feels a little bit different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's a few reasons for that, but um, if you can think of, and this analogy begins to break down in some ways, but the writers of the four Gospels are not just trying to tell the exact same story in the exact same way, but they're telling the story, and, and this analogy again can break down, but as a director, they're telling it with a certain nuance for a certain reason. And John is the longest living uh, uh, um, apostle. And he, what, what we know historically, was a pastor for many, many, many years till the day that he died. And so when he writes the Gospel of John, he was given questions based on the person of Jesus and who he was. And so we see his Gospel be a little more refined and therefore a little more poetic, right? Which is really, really beautiful. And, and I say that because in, in John chapter 6, he's... Um, He's going to put something in front of us that we have to slow down and see some really cool nuances. And if we can, um, we're going to see poetry come alive. He's been asked certain things about Jesus, and he's telling us something, and he's doing some bob and weave ways to do it. As a matter of fact, one of the pastors, a uh, uh, pretty uh, well-known pastor, he, he said, uh, I believe that we can teach just the gospel of John for a full year. Take just the whole year and teach the gospel of John. And as I began to look at it, I really think that's true. With all the things that are hidden in there, as a matter of fact, Charles Spurgeon took 45 sermons to preach John 6. 45 sermons. So, John 6, verse 1, let's try to cover it in one Sunday. Okay, here we go. Um, 
I'm going to read this first part. We're going to read this uh, encounter. Oh, let me pray. I'm going to read this encounter, and then I'm going to explain how we're going to we're going to roll through this. Father, we ask that you would illuminate the text for us this morning. Spirit, we need it. We need it to um, train us in righteousness. We need it to convict us, to rebuke us, to encourage us. As believers, we have listened to so many other people's ideas, philosophies, political views, agendas this week. So now we sit and we hear your word, myself included. We hear your word. We pray that it would come alive. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. John 6, verse 1. After this, it's a lot. We're going to cover 40 verses this morning. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of uh, Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that they, that these people may eat? He said this to test them for he himself knew what he would do. Stop real quick. We're going to, we're going to read, um, an encounter that whether you're a believer or not in this room, you're probably aware of you. You've probably heard of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. That's what we're going to read this morning. Jesus sees this crowd, this large crowd, We'll find out in a minute. It's 5,000 people. Um, and, and seeing this large crowd, there's this feast going on, this feast of the Jews. And you, I don't even need to explain the Passover feast. You could just hear a feast is going on. He sees this large crowd following him. In a compassionate move, right, he goes, man, everyone else is eating. I want these people to be able to eat as well. And he asks the disciples, where can we get all this food? And he knows what he's doing, right? But this encounter is, is what John 6 is all about. It's only the first 14 verses. Then the rest of John 6 is unpacking this. So let's keep going. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, excuse me, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? We got all this. Andrew comes up and goes, well, there's this guy, this boy who has a little bit of food, but I don't know what, it's not going to provide enough for all these people. There's no way. Jesus said to them, or Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Mark, just so you know, Mark says 5,000 men. So this is probably closer to nine or 10,000 people total. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the, uh, saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus then has them sit down, feeds them this food. What comes back is more than what was initially brought out. Amazing. The people are amazed. This is a prophet. Awesome. Now, in this series, <clears throat> what we've been trying to do is look specifically at the person of Jesus. And, and, and as believers, and if you're a believer in here, we're looking specifically at the person of Jesus because he's the perfect human. And in being the perfect human, the God who is now in flesh, we follow him. He is the perfect example. And because that's true, we want to just acknowledge a couple things, but, but I want to unpack this because there's a lot to do here. So I want you to look at, look at the text again. <clears throat> what is going on? A few things. Number one, 
Notice how control, uh, of, in control of Jesus is in the situation. There's this huge problem, believers. There's this huge problem, and it's okay. Okay, it's okay. He has them sit down. He distributes the food. He tells the disciples to gather up the leftovers. It's okay. He's in control. He knows what he's doing, right? There's something beautiful about that in this moment. But, but I also want you to, to, to see something else that's going on in, in his compassion for caring for the people. Um, I've tried to save at the end of these sermons, Jesus is doing a thousand different things that we can't see and then kind of connect it. In my opinion, Paul Miller, in his book, Love Walked Among Us, I think this is the, the coolest connection that he does. <clears throat> and here's how I would explain this connection, something really beautiful in this text. Um, I, I took uh, Titus, uh, my, one of our, our, our youngest boy, uh, on a field trip. I didn't take him to school, took him and I had to be a chaperone. But, um, and I thought we were going to the ballet. Whew, we didn't go to the ballet. We went to um, a symphony, Peter and the Wolf, okay? And I have never been to a symphony before um, that like told a story. They don't have a lot of those where I grew up in Sunny Slope. Um, and so, so I go in and here's Peter and the Wolf. You don't know, if the, know, know the story, but here's essentially how Peter and the Wolf works. They get up and they explain to all these kids these musical overtures that are going to take place throughout the story. And the strings are a certain uh, character, and the flute's a certain character, some other weird instrument is a character, the drums are a certain character. All of the instruments are playing the part in the story. And there's this narrator that says, and then the wolf came, boom, 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 right? And it's doing this whole deal. Well, as you hear the, the beginning notes from the jump of the symphony... Towards the middle and the end, every time they played the strings, for example, I go, oh, okay, Peter's in this part of the play. I, I knew, I would, because I knew early on the musical overtures that played itself out in the rest of the symphony, I knew what was going on in the story, okay? Uh, Paul Miller argues, and I think he's right, what Jesus is doing when he feeds the 5,000 here is connecting himself to one of the most, if not the most famous psalm in all of the Bible, Psalm 23. That in this moment, Jesus is very intentionally being in control, having the people sit down where they are, distributing food. Psalm 23 is the account that we would always read at a funeral. The Lord is my shepherd. But listen to some of the language. I'm not going to read all Psalm 23. Listen to some of the language that's in Psalm 23, just so you're kind of aware some of these, these things. He, he lies us down in green pastures. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, uh, have the people sit down, and there was much grass in this place. Besides still water, look at verse 1. It's next to the Sea of Galilee. Obviously, he's getting off a boat. We're going to find out here in a little bit. You prepare a table for me. This is a, 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 a way of symbolizing that he provides food for the people to eat. This is what Jesus is doing. My cup overflows. Jesus not only gathers these baskets arbitrarily, just like it is what it is, he gathers them and takes care of those people who are providing for the people, the disciples. This is meant to be a musical overture in Psalm 23 that were to hear here, green pastures, still waters. He provides. And we're to go, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus is the great shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd. That's why, that's why the people are going, this is the prophet we've been waiting for. It's not just the miracle. They're hearing musical overtures. These people would know the Old Testament far more than we know it. And so there's something really beautiful for us to see that Jesus cares for his people. As a shepherd, he's gathering them He's providing for them. He is the good shepherd. Jesus is our great shepherd. He's the fulfillment of Psalm 23, which is amazing. If you haven't caught that. Now, here's what happens. We still got a lot of text to read, but I need to stop us real quick. This account in Jesus feeding the 5,000 or feeding all of these people, um, it's just an account. 
it's not what we're supposed to be amazed about. Like, it is amazing, but it's not the point. So my guess is, in John 6, I read that account, and most of us in the room are familiar with the feeding of the crowd, but we're not familiar with why. And so here's, here's what I would encourage you to do. Rolodex in your mind real quick, kind of flip through there, and think of a season in your life where you were able to look back and go, oh, I see what you were doing. Not just a moment, like a car crash that you avoided or whatever it is, but like a season, a week, a two weeks, a month, a year. And then you have now have some hindsight and you look back and you go, oh, this isn't just an encounter where Jesus feeds the crowd, but just look at even at, uh, at verse 22. We're going to skip it down to verse 22. It says on the next day, because after Jesus feeds these people, um, he ends up meeting his disciples on the sea. And I wish I could unpack this. This is why John 6 could require so many sermons. He meets the people. He walks on water, an amazing count within itself. I mean, awesome. And then he ends up coming to the other side and the people meet him, but it's on the next day. There's a long period of time that goes on that John wants us to sit on. Jesus fed all these people on the next day. We're still talking about what Jesus did the day prior. There's something more going on. And, and for us to look back in our own lives and see, oh, that's what Jesus is doing. I think that's what John wants us to do here. He wants us to go, okay, now, now Jesus fed the crowd. Let's look back and see what he did. You see that? You, you see what he's doing? So let's look at some of the idiosyncrasies that's there. Um, so let, let, let's do it. Let's start in verse 22. There's this moment, man, verse 15. They, they try to make him king, but he doesn't. He withdraws, which is an amazing thing. I wish I could unpack that more. But let's go to verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side, just so you know, if you're new, I'm going to read a lot of text right now. Just comment. We're going to read the whole account of what Jesus says, then I'll unpack it, okay? On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So the crowd is following Jesus. All the disciples got on the boat. We saw that. How did Jesus get to the other side? Because he walked on water. Okay. And so the disciples get on the boat and they follow Jesus. This mass crowd, it's important to the narrative. This mass crowd is following Jesus. Okay. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Watch what Jesus is about to do. He's he's about to turn this thing. He's about to go, you saw the bread, I gave you bread, but you you're missing it. You're missing it. You're missing it. Okay. Notice how he's going to continue to pick this up. Verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Verse 29, which whenever I'm asked, what's my favorite verse, the most important verse in the Bible, I would say John 6, 29. Sounds very like an overstatement, but listen to it. Jesus answered them. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. If you want to know what you need to do for God, how you need to earn grace, just read verse uh, 29 in chapter six. So they said to him, what, uh, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God 
I'm sorry, for the bread of God is he who comes from, the he- from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Again, notice he's taking the miracle and they're going, uh, look at Moses. Moses provided bread. What, what miracle do you perform? And, and he's, he's pointing something. He says, no, no, no. You're looking at Moses providing bread. You're missing God ultimately provided bread. And he makes a statement. I'm the bread. That's important. Listen, 35. Let's keep going. We're almost there. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you, may, uh, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39. And this is the will of, of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, a lot to unpack, breathe, let's go through what just happened. Okay, just some some chronology of what we have here. Jesus feeds the people, so the people follow Jesus, okay? Jesus tells them in this moment, don't follow me because I fed you. So just, just to be clear, Jesus feeds the people, The crowd follows Jesus because they fed the people. And Jesus says, don't follow me because of the bread. Just look at you. You can see it even in verse 26. Let me read 26 again in case you missed it. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Okay, so before we can completely unpack what's going on, let's just acknowledge the the text itself. And then I'm going to talk about why this is important for us. Um, The people in this moment, recognize we need bread. And Jesus can get us bread. Therefore, let's follow Jesus. Let me say it again. We need bread. Jesus can get us bread. Therefore, let's follow Jesus. Okay, let's do it one more time, okay? We need something. I need something. Jesus can get me that something, and therefore, I follow Jesus. And and so what happens is, Jesus makes it crystal clear, that's not okay. And what he does is, he says, I'm not a means to an end. Jesus was never meant to be useful. And so what we find is, Jesus calls this out, and he says, the power is in who I am not in what I can give you. And so he calls this out in the people. That's what we see in this story. He points to the fact that, yes, I gave bread, but don't you see it was an emblem. It was something to point you towards something greater. To me, I gave you this thing. Yes, it's a good thing, but it was meant to point to something else. All of John 6 is unpacking this miracle story, saying, if you stop at the gift, you miss the point. You want more bread. You're following me for the wrong reason. That's not following me. So what would we do with this? Like, what what does this mean for us? So FYI, I have been waiting about three weeks um, to get to this point in the sermon. Um, I have, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot to say here. And um, I think it's worth saying, ironically, in the season of Lent, I think it's worth saying... Um, with some caveats. One is my, my goal here is not to, I never ever want to blast the bride of Christ. 
Um, I never want to speak ill of any other church. That's not something that I'm going to do, want to do, desire to do. And so that's not what this is for. But this is an observation of where American Christianity is. Okay? So let me just put this, how we can define the American gospel is summed up here in John 6, what Jesus is calling out. Okay? And, and there's a few people that I even want to, not no one in the crowd here, that I want to even bring up that is, is worth acknowledging. Um, so here's, here's where I'm going to say. It's worth acknowledging that um, the Christianity that we have within America is a tad bit different than you get to experience overseas. Okay? Let's just call that for what it is. It's also a tad bit different than we experience historically. Let's just call it what it is. If you read certain accounts, guys like uh, in the book of Fox's Book of Martyrs, gals in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, just, just giving their life quite literally physically away, that's one thing. But man, if you just go to another country, there's no meddling in with self-centeredness. There's no like kind of I'm following Jesus. No, no, no. It's like for something about it, there's a grit about the Christianity. We read of our brothers and sisters before us. We hear about the third world countries around us. There's a grit that they have and all in that they have that it feels like within American Christianity, we kind of don't. Now we got the bumper stickers and, and, and the churches we go to on our glass. We've got that down. We've got the crosses around our neck. Yeah, we've got that down. But there is something different about following Jesus historically and the brothers and sisters around the world that we see that's not in American Christianity. And I want to just take a moment and acknowledge that John 6 tells us exactly what that is. So, so hear me. At our core, and I've tried to, man, as elders, we've tried to put this in front of you. We have been raised to breathe something that we can't even recognize. It's called consumerism. That everything is about you. That, that you, can, you can desire comfort, you can do what you want, and you just think it's so normal that our brothers and sisters don't even have options for. And so because of that, consumerism blends really, really well with Christianity. Here's how. Um, because if Christ can be something that I add to who I am, that profits maybe in work or profits in family or gets me to a, a good end, because hear me, I want bread, Jesus provides bread, therefore I follow Jesus. All you got to do is remove the term bread. I want a spouse. Jesus can provide me a spouse, therefore I follow Jesus. I need a raise. I'm looking for a home. I just want this relationship. I want my kids to act this way. I need this. I need this. And if Jesus can do this, then it's not a comprehensive worldview of everything is about him. No, no, no. We're starting from a place about us. We, like the crowd within American Christianity, have the tendency to follow Jesus because he provided us bread. Now, now this is where this whole thing is so, so tricky. Um, you, you think to yourself, well, that's not true of me. And that's the trick. I'm going to stand in front of you and say, so many times in my life, that's true of me. Like there are so many moments where I think God owes me, where I think I've done the right things and I'm mad that things are going a certain way. That comes from something. That comes from adding Jesus to, to 
another form of label. Sky Jahani actually says, uh, I never pronounce his, last, his name right, but it's, it's his book called Immeasurable. Um, it's a great book. It's, it's written to pastors and people who are in ministry. But listen to how he describes this exact syndrome. He says this, when we approach Christianity as consumers, rather than seeing it as a comprehensive way of life, an interpretive set of beliefs and values, Christianity becomes just one more brand I consume, along with Gap, Apple, and Starbucks to express my identity. Yeah. And the demotion of Jesus Christ from Lord to label means to live as a Christian no longer carries an expectation of obedience and good works, but rather the perpetual consumption of Christian merchandise and experiences, music, books, t-shirts, conferences, and jewelry. Approaching Christianity as a brand rather than a worldview explains why the majority of people who identify themselves as born-again Christians live no different than other, Christi- than other Americans. I'm going to read that last line. The majority of people who identify themselves as born-again Christians live no differently than other Americans. It's obvious in the text that he can provide for you physically and there be no change spiritually. That's obvious in the text. What you may not see is in verse 66, as the text goes on, Jesus continues to melee them. No, no, no. It's not about bread. It's about me. It's not about bread. It's about me. It's not about your life and your happiness and your comfort. It's about me. And we hear that and we go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Every consumer itching your body is going, man, that seems egocentric on God's part. All the while it's for your joy, but that's a whole other conversation. It's about Jesus. You're missing it. He's the bread. He's the bread. He's the bread. And they hear this over and over to a point where he even eventually says, if you don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, and the disciples go, whoa, wait, what? And verse 66, read it. They leave. Like Jesus is cool when he provides the bread. He's cool when he provides the bread. But man, when he pushes too hard in this direction, that's a little bit much, JC. And he le- They leave. So, so, so we can call out the Benny Hens of the world and the prosperity gospel and the Joel Olsteins. That's easy. That's too easy. Because, because we can identify them and go, oh, yeah, they're doing this, that, that, that. No, no, no. There's a lukewarmness to waters we have to swim in. So, so let me, let me uh, do my best to acknowledge where I think I can see this. And I think this is God provided this in these last couple of weeks through some articles and, and all this stuff. So um, we, we call out a lot of guys that we see this, the Joel Steens, the Benny Hens, the Jensen Franklins, whatever it is. Um, ladies, let me talk to you for a second. When, when we get American Christianity, which I would argue is a watered-down version of the prosperity gospel, we get people like Rachel Hollis. Ladies, hear me. We get people like Rachel Hollis. I love you. And some of you have no idea, maybe most of you have no idea who Rachel Hollis is. The... I think, uh, I think at least in 2018, was the highest grossing selling woman Christian author. Yeah, girl, wash your face. Girl, stop apologizing. So if you get a chance, um, I would just go on to the Gospel Coalition and I would read uh, an article um, called Girl, Follow Jesus. And um, it's by Jen Oshman. She's a pastor's wife uh, from, from Colorado. And let me just explain how this looks, because I want to use her as a template. My, my goal is not to put uh, Rachel Hollis on blast, but so that we can see how sneaky this whole deal is. Um, Rachel Hollis is this author who wrote these books, and essentially, um, it's not essentially, it is under the banner of Christianity. Let me be clear. If it was not under the banner of Christianity, I would not care. 
But when you can add Jesus to your philosophies and ideas and promote it and sell it in droves in Christian bookstores, we've got to begin to ask certain questions. We have to. What, what kind of Christianity is being exported to China right now from the West? That's the kind of question we have to ask. And so in uh, uh, some of her books, I'm not going to quote all these, but let me just give you just a, a glimpse. In A Girl, Stop Apologizing, you see this on page 83, and I would encourage you to read the, the um, article in the Gospel Coalition about her. This is what it says. All that matters is how bad you want those dreams and what you're willing to do to make them happen. That's what Rachel Hollis says. Under the banner of Christianity, this, listen, you got to hear this, this is Christianity. This is what the world says, this is Christianity. Let me read it again. This is Christianity. This is Christianity. This is Christianity. Okay? All that really matters is how bad you want those dreams and what you're willing to do to make them happen. Over and over, you'll read in her book, like you'll, you'll hear the same statements back again and again. You are made for more. You are made for more. You are made for more. Listen to, to, to uh, something that the Gospel Coalition article says. It says, this is a direct quote from the article. She encourages readers to pick 10 goals, write them out every day, and meditate on the future version uh, that we have of ourselves in order to get a subconscious involved. An example of one of these goals is, I only fly first class. Say that to yourself in the morning. I only fly first class. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. Now, aside from the fact that a white middle-class woman from California is telling people how to obtain their goals when, when the woman from Ecuador probably doesn't even get to fly on a plane and she can make statements like, maybe parenting isn't your thing. Candace and I were joking about this. The woman from Ecuador walking a thousand miles with four kids just stops in the middle of Mexico and goes, you know what? This really isn't my thing. No, no, stay there. I'm done. Okay. The fact that it couldn't apply to most of the world, which is, you will always see as a sign of the prosperity gospel and a watering down of it. The fact that this, listen to this, this is Christianity. This is Christianity. Is your schedule populated by things that will make your life better? Or is it dictated by everyone else's, <clears throat> everyone else's wants and needs? First of all, that's a good question. This is the trick with the prosperity gospel. This is the trick with the American gospel is that we can water down and there are some good truths that you should not be tossed to and fro by everyone else's demands of you. That's worth asking. I agree with that. And she has a lot of good points that I think are go, okay, I can see where that's coming from. Listen to the next uh, declaration of, of this statement. So is it dictated by everyone else's wants and needs? Being occasionally inconvenienced is a part of life. And if you're willing to serve others, then you better be willing to demand that they do it for you. That's Christianity. This is under the banner of Christianity. My goal right now is not to put Rachel Hollis on blast, though I clearly am doing that right now. That's not my goal. My goal is to be wise as serpents and to recognize we're acting just like the crowd. If we're not careful, we're following Jesus to get us to first class. And you go, well, that's such an extreme. But it's not that far off from where we are. The irony of what happens is in verse 41, the next verse, the Jews, they, they see Jesus feed the, the, the crowds and they're good. But listen to this, verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were cool with Jesus providing the physical thing. They are not cool with Jesus being the ultimate thing. They're not cool with that. And this is the difference. It's an all-in Christianity. And so, man, if I, this, this is where you have to process, what do you love? What do you desire? What do you want? Now, there are good things that we can want, but if it is 
to follow Jesus to get there, that's the American gospel. That's not Christianity. That, that's, that's Rachel Hollis garbage. That's the prosperity gospel seeping its way in. It's the air that we breathe. And if we're not careful, we're going to miss John 6. That he cares about your need physically, but he cares way more about you spiritually. Can I just say this? Sometimes he loves you enough to not provide bread. Do you understand? It it is in your own good that he's not giving you a spouse right now. He loves you that much. That's why right now, for whatever reason, it's confusing. There's a brokenness involved. I get it. There's so many things. But in this moment, what you can know is he loves you enough to provide bread when you need it. And there are moments where he's afraid or sees that you're going to miss the emblem for what it is. And he doesn't. And he's just as good. But the watered down version of the American gospel always says, I get mine. You want to know why? Because it's self-centered. It's always about you. And so you feel owed by God. We miss Jesus for the bread. And this is exactly what happens in John 6. I'm going to pray for us, but before I do, I want to read some verses to you. Um, And, and you know, as I read these verses, I would challenge you even to meditate uh, and just sit quietly. But I remember one of the first, um, one of the first quotes I ever read from Charles Spurgeon. I was reading lectures to my students, and it just stuck in my head. I told Candace last night, it's my favorite quote. I didn't have to try to memorize it. I just memorized it. He almost prophetically makes this statement in lectures to my students. He says, one day the church will no longer be guided by shepherds feeding the sheep, but will be clowns entertaining the goats. And I've never shared that quote with you before because it's really, really strong. It says, it no longer will be shepherds feeding the sheep, but it will be clowns entertaining goats. I pray we're not on the wrong side of this. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. These aren't on the screen. These are for you to sit and to wash over you. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. By testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. First John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Did you hear that from before? Let's go to James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. This is important. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And we could just remove that term money. You cannot serve God and anything else. Do you hear how black and white that is? Do you hear how there's no room for gray, for, for compromise? There's no room for the American self-centered Christianity that we continue to export to the third world countries. There's no room for it. Let's pray. 
Jesus, it's amidst the miracle that we hear this warning. It's amidst the fact that you provide for your people in a miraculous way. Literally, here's a miracle we see. It's awesome. It's amazing. The fact that you can do this with matter, we don't even understand how it works. And yet, though we are amazed by it, we just sit on that, the fact that you did this amazing miracle, and we miss the fact that you are the true bread. We're mindful of even verse 48, 51, 58. You continue to remind us, you're the bread. You're, you're giving yourself away to your people. And when gathered up, there's always enough. You're the bread. You're the bread. You're the point of the story. My prayer for us as a church is that we would not miss who you are for the miracle, that we would move past that gift. We would see who you are. We would see the person of Jesus. We would see how beautiful you are. We would see the fact that you care about our joy. You care more about our joy than we care about our joy. And we would lean into who you are and not what you can give us. Thanks for the warning this morning, Holy Spirit. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.